Our sermon passage comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she shut out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should, be, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, which you promised does not return void. I pray that your word would inspire us this morning, that your word would dwell in us, encouraging us to love like you love, to serve like you serve, to live like you have called us to live. By the power of your spirit working in us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, as I mentioned last week, one of the things that's very similar to, to our time is to Ruth's time is, is the, the motto that comes to us. You know, Ruth tells us that it it's comes to us in the, in the same era as the era of Judges. And the, and the motto of, of the book of Judges is that there is no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I, I think if I was going to pick one era of the Bible that, that our time you know, mimics, it would probably be this one. In fact, you might be able to say that we've actually perfected this model, motto, that we are our own kings, that we live according to our, own, to, our, to our passions better than anyone else before us. You know, finally, we are a people that are free to do whatever we want. We can become whatever we want, whatever we can dream we can be. You know, for the first time in, in history, one might argue that you can finally pursue what, what you love and 
without any obstacles before you. You know, one might be able to call our current age the age of love, loving whatever you want, whenever you want. And yet, I might counter-argue, or in fact, you'll find I will counter-argue, that if anything, we live in the age of timid love. That the thing that our world says is the bold love is actually timid love. You know, if, if our love for something is always on our own terms, if it's quick to pivot, if it breaks easily under pressure, if love has an exit strategy, it's not love at all. At best, it's a timid love. And I think, you know, we are reaping the fruits of timid love. In our relationships, we tend to have one foot out the door, worried we might get hurt again, worried we're going to make mistakes. Uh, I mean, this is one of the things that creates uh, where divorce is, is normal. And this just isn't just the world out there. This is happening in the church, too, where you know, people live with someone before getting married to test it out. You know, not committing to local churches through membership is seen as a prudent thing. The, the idea of covenanting with others, of saying, listen, I'm going to live and die with others is a barbaric thing. Why would you tie yourself down to one group of people or even to one religion when you can have it all? But the problem is, is when you try to have it all, you end up with nothing. You know, half-hearted relationships, half-hearted friendships, half-hearted commitments. And so the problem, you know, with our love isn't that our love is too bold. The, The problem with our love is that it's not bold enough. So what do we do with this? What do we do with timid love? With a love that with built-in exit strategies? Well, we need something beyond us. We need something stronger, something that you see in verse 8 translated typically as deal kindly, but it comes from a Hebrew word that's hesed. Hesed is the strongest form of love that there is, and this is what we need. It's the the word that describes who God is. It's It's a stubborn love. It means steadfast love. It's a love that isn't driven by our, our feelings, which ebb and flow in the moment, but by commitments. It's a stubborn love that doesn't let go no matter what. It's a love with no exit strategy, a love with no plan B. You know, Jeremiah 3.12, God says, I am Hesed. This is who God is. He's a love with no regrets. He's, my, his covenants are, he never breaks. His love is never phased. And Ruth this morning reaches out and teaches us that we need to have his love guide us and define us and stabilize us. You know, it's only with this kind of thing that we can resist the motto of our day. And this is an aspect of the faithfulness of God that we find throughout the book of Ruth that we began kind of meditating on last week, that there's no plan B for God. And in a world filled with timid love, in a world filled with exit strategies. We need something beyond us. We need the immovable, hesed love of God. And I think as we explore this theme of, of love this morning, there's, there's two kinds of loves we're going to see on display. First, we're going to see the timid love on display. And then we're going to see true hesed love. So first, timid love. Before we kind of dive into verse 8, just remember where we are in the story. These women have just experienced significant loss, not only husbands, but sons. And this means that they've lost all source of protection in this world. You know, they lost their ability to earn money, to have a future. Widows without children were some of the most vulnerable people of this time, and they were now going to be completely dependent on others for help. 
There's no welfare state. There's no outside help. And as far as they knew at the time, they had no other family to help them. Uh, and this is something we're going we're gonna to see more clearly as they get back to Bethlehem. But the thing is, Naomi knows that this is true, that their future is bleak. Uh, Ruth and Orpah know that their future is bleak as they go back. And it seems like they have very heavy hearts as they're sobbing. You know, they have heavy hearts as they begin their journey back to Naomi's land. And Naomi stops suddenly. It's like they're, they're walking. If you've ever been on like a, a mountain, you, you know, you get to that place where the, you're about to go up to switchbacks. You know, was, you thought this hike was nice and easy. And then all of a sudden you get like, you know, two miles just straight up, up the mountain. It's kind of like they get to that point And then Naomi turns to them and she says this in verse 8 through 9. But Naomi said to her, Two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. So Naomi is telling her daughters, listen, go back. Why does she tell them to go back? Well, for pragmatic reasons. This is one of the first things we learn about timid love is timid love is pragmatic. She thinks that the best thing for them is to go back to the land where they can have a chance at a life, right? Where they can get married, where they can have rest, it says. Which rest is this kind of idea of you're taken care of, you're protected, you're safe, you can rest. And she is saying, you cut your losses with me. You have no future with me. Please go back. And you know, one of the interesting things apart, this initial word to them, is that she says, may the Lord... Hesed with you. May God show his steadfast love to you as you go. It's, she's almost praying this prayer of blessing over them, showing that she wants what she thinks is the best for them, and she's convinced that what's best for them is to actually go back to the land of Moab. You know, one of the things to keep in mind in this time especially, you know, each nation had their, their own God, and so no one except for the Israelites, thought that their God was the one true God. They always thought that they were just one God amongst the uh, many other nations that each had their own God. So it was mostly, most people thought of gods as a national thing. So it's as if she is saying, listen, you can keep your God too, uh, and you can keep ours too, just, just go back. He, he may even bless you because you've been nice and kind to me. It's like a consolation prize. Maybe it's to assuage Naomi for some of the guilt that she might be feeling for all that had happened in their time away. And, you know, one commentator actually calls Naomi the anti-evangelist. You probably don't want a commentator calling you an anti-evangelist. Because um, she's sending them back to Moab, the land of false gods. Sending them away from the living God, to, back to these false gods. And why does she do this? Because timid love is pragmatic. And what we find further here is that pragmatic love lacks an ability to trust. Pragmatic love doesn't trust. It, it trusts whatever seems to be prudent in the, in the moment. You know, to trust God means you have to live by faith, not by sight. And timid love says, trust the most pragmatic way forward. And in verse 10, uh, we see them respond saying this. They, in verse 10, they say, no, we will return with you to your people and then she goes into further detail of what will happen. If you come with me, this is what will happen. She's trying to scare them away from following her. And this is what she says in verse 11 through 10. But, but Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? 
Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's sharing more openly about the reason that they need to come back. She said, come with me and you're going to have nothing. She said, I can't have another son. Do you expect me to get married again and then bear more children, even if I were able to? It's not like they're going to, you're going to be way too old by the time they become marriable. You know, and, and as a quick aside, in this ancient world, according to the laws of Moses, when, women's, uh, when a woman's husband died, it would have fallen to the next brother in line to marry her. Well, there were no brothers left. And as far as they knew, there was no more men left in the line uh, to marry them. And so she's saying, listen, if we go back, if you come with me, you're going to be alone. You're going to have nothing. If you go back to Moab, you're at least going to have a chance for the good life. You at least have a chance to get married and to have children and to have protection. You know, which kind of exposes a little bit about what Naomi thinks is the good life, right? She assumes that the good life is about personal prosperity, right? As long as I can have the things I think I need, I'm going to be okay. Which, how often do we do the same thing? How, how often do we let whatever will lead to material prosperity guide our decision-making? And, you know, we see here that she also senses that God has been unkind to her, that she has nothing left, she is bitter. And so instead of bringing her daughters-in-law with her back to the God of Israel, to the one true God, she sends them back to the land of, of Moab. You know, another commentator sums up what she is saying well by saying that Naomi is basically saying that you might as well serve your own gods, back in Moab. Your God will probably treat you better than our God will treat you. Look at what our God did to me and my family. You know, and one of the patterns you see throughout the Bible is actually the, the pattern of, of ex, exile and exodus. Uh, Adam and Eve sin, they get exiled out of the Garden of Eden, and then as God pursues his people through covenants, he's exodus, and he's bringing them back to himself. Obviously, there's a book of the Bible called Exodus, which the people are, ex you know, are, are in Egypt, slaved, and they get exodus out. And then throughout the, the, the people's life of Israel, they get taken out of the land and their sin. They get exiled to get exodus back in. And this is kind of a, a pattern of how God, God works with his people. Naomi and her family have experienced one of these moments. They've been exiled. They've been outside the land of God, and now they're being brought back in. They're being exodus back, back to the land of redemption. And yet it seems as if Naomi... Although she's doing, going through the motions, she has lost her faith. You know, at the beginning of this story, you might think Ruth is the one that needs to be converted to Yahweh, but it seems as if it's Naomi that needs to be converted to Yahweh. That her love for Yahweh has been timid, it's had limits, and we're seeing the limits of her, of her love, the limits of her ability to follow and trust God, so much so that she suggests that they might be able to find rest in Moab. In the land of no rest, they might be able to find rest. And one of the things we learn in the Bible is that Yahweh is the God of rest. He's the one that invented rest. He's the God who gives us Sabbath rest. And rest is this idea of protection and provision. The fact that you can go to sleep at night suggests that you feel safe, provided for. And that happens most clearly when we're with God. And yet, instead of trusting in that truth, she says that, you know, maybe the Moabites can give you the rest that Yahweh can't give to me and my family. Her love is timid. The love of Naomi has limits, and they respond again by weeping here. 
I wonder if, if there's part of, the, of, of Naomi that wants them to come, but maybe another part is saying it's better for you to go. Just, just go. And it tells us that Orpah does just that. Orpah kisses her goodbye. She found the, love, uh, the, the limits to her love for Naomi. She was finally convinced by Naomi's argument that it would indeed be better for her to go back. And the name Orpah actually is, is, a, is a word that, that refers to the back of someone's neck. And so it's even in her name it makes sense that she's going to eventually turn her back to them, show the back of her neck to them, and go back to her land. And, you know, when considering the options before her, uh, as, as Sinclair Ferguson says, you know, Jehovah plus nothing in Bethlehem, or everything minus Jehovah in, in Moab, she chooses Moab. She chooses the chance for her vision of the good life, which, you know, it's hard to even fault her for that. If Naomi and her family don't trust Yahweh, then why should she? And one of the things we learn about timid love is timid love only partially returns. It only has a partial exodus back. And remember that the word for return here is the same word for repent. She is only partially repenting, only partially going to, 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 to Naomi's God and her people. And timid love doesn't go all the way. Timid love cuts its losses. Which begs the question, where are the limits of, of your love? Where do you struggle to trust God when things get difficult and challenging? Where are you pragmatic in your approach to loving I think one place that gets to this is that we, we often think that the path of least resistance is where God is guiding. And the place where things are hard, it means that God is not actually working. But the everlasting way throughout, throughout Scripture, throughout the history of the church, is always the hardest way. It's always the way that puts you between an arrow and the target. You know, this is why there's that old saying that the church is built on the blood of martyrs. The way forward is... Difficult. This is the way of the cross. And in a world of, of timid love that only finds the, the easy route, the, the route of least resistance, Hesed love is unexpected. Hesed love does not make sense. In a world that is addicted to itself and loves itself more than life, Hesed love stands out like a full moon against a dark night sky. And this is actually what we find here. We find something unexpected from an unexpected person. Against the backdrop of timid love, what we find is hesed love. What we find is hesed love. And this is what we begin to see here in verse 14. Right, then they lifted up their voices, wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to Naomi. Right, Orpah goes her way, but Ruth clings to her. And this is some Genesis 2 imagery going on. When we learn that when, you know, when a man and woman get married, what do they do? But they're to cling to each other. Ruth is saying, listen, I am your family. I am devoted to you, to, to your people, to your God. I will not go. I am bonded to you. And through, through Naomi, Ruth isn't just following her mother-in-law. She's clinging to her people. She's joining herself to Israel and this outsider, we will find, actually becomes model Israel. Uh, and this is what we find here in, in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So Naomi, one more time, say, please, just go. Just leave. Follow her. Go back. She's saying, return back to the land. Right? Repent back to your land. And Ruth responds to this final pleading from Naomi with some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. In Hebrew, it's a, it's a poem. 
I mean, and listen to this against the backdrop, backdrop of this, this conversation and the backdrop of this, this love with limits and against the backdrop of a mother-in-law who is trying to get her to leave. This is how she responds in verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Literally, to repent from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These are stunning words. They're otherworldly. Because we're not used to seeing this kind of love. We're not used to loving this way ourselves. Or to being loved this way. And one of the things we learn here is to be joined to God is to be joined to his people. You can't worship and serve God without being joined to his people. There's no salvation outside the church, just like there's no surviving the flood without the ark. In a very real way, the church is the new ark, gathering those who would likewise call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and they're saved inside the safety of the church. And if the words that she is saying here sound familiar to you, it's because these are familiar words in the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, a Jewish person reading this, would, these words would immediately stand out. They would think of passages like Leviticus 12, 26, 12, where God says this to his people, I will be your God, and you will be my people. These are the words that were mimicked in 1 Peter that we read earlier th- this morning. And these are the words that Ruth is saying back to Naomi. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I think what makes this all the more stunning is remember who this is that's saying these words. A Moabite woman. The Moabites were the enemies of God and his people. And Moabite women were especially seen as seductive women in their sin. And, And now she's the one that's actually showing God to Naomi. She's the one that's covenanting herself to this people. She's the woman in the story that's actually showing Hesed love. And one of the fun things about Scripture, maybe fun's not the right word to use, but God often chooses his enemies to show himself to his people, to show his love. And Ruth's devotion to Naomi's example of actually God's devotion to her. It is his Hesed love that she is showing to Naomi. And the life that she's committed to is not an easy life. Naomi doesn't have a lodge. So the lodge, when she says, your lodge will be my lodge, she's basically saying, the street that you sleep on is going to be the street that I sleep on. Right? They're widows. Nothing is certain for the future. But she's saying, because you are there, I want to be there. And what's wild about what she's saying is her commitment doesn't even just end when her mother-in-law dies. But what does it say? Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Don't send me back to Moab. Never. Not even in my death. I will be with you even in the grave. I will love you to the point of death. And even then, I want to be buried amongst the people of Israel, she is saying. Where Abraham and Sarah are buried, I'm never going back. Orpah is rejecting Moab and its gods. And I think this gets doubled down even further when she says, listen, even if if I don't do as I say, if, if I break this, take my life. You know, for all she knows, she is accepting a life without a home, a life without a husband, without protection, without children. 
You know, this is a list of all the things that likely are the most important things to you as well. She's committed to all this. Why? How can she say this? Because at the end of the day, she has a profound trust in Yahweh. She loves Yahweh. And to love Yahweh is to say, all that I have, all that I am is yours. Even if you are all that I have, I I need nothing more. There's no halfway love. To love Yahweh is to die to yourself. And I think one of the things that Ruth is teaching us is a central aspect of love is actually death. Ruth teaches us that death is at the center of Hesed love. You know, Naomi says, listen, save your life, forget me. Orpah says, okay, I will save my life and go back to this land. And Ruth says, listen, I've already died for you. I have no other life to live than the life with you. Death is at the center of love. It's not prosperity. It's not our feelings. It isn't material abundance. It isn't pragmatism. It isn't safism. It is giving your life for somebody else. First John tells us this, right? No greater love is there than laying your life down for another. This is the greatest form of love, and God uses Ruth of all people to show it to Naomi. And how does Naomi respond? But she's speechless. Maybe she's never experienced this kind of love. Maybe she didn't feel lovable. Maybe she didn't want to be loved. And yet she is. And she doesn't respond by praising God for this. She doesn't respond by thanking her. She isn't yet converted to Yahweh in her heart. And she responds with silence. Says she said no more. You know, one of the things about loving with Hesed love is that it gives with no thought to what is returned. Right? It doesn't give to receive, it gives to give. And there's no greater example of this than Christ. Right? Jesus, for us, is the greater Ruth. Right? Ruth can only give so much. She can't really give beyond her own death, can she? But Jesus can. He's the one that truly has no limits to his love. To make his people his own, what does he do? He doesn't take the easy path, but he storms the very gates of hell. He enters into the place of death. He conquers even that place by not staying dead, by breaking the powers of death and his resurrection. You know, even though our love for him is uneven, even though our love for each other comes and goes, and our love ends up looking more like Naomi's than in the nations of Israel in our history than it does of Ruth. But Christ's love for you has no limits as demonstrated by his work on the cross and in the resurrection. There is no place you can go to run from it. God loves whom he loves. Full stop. And we can be confident of his love because it's his love to give. Right? Remember what we read in 1 Peter 2, 10, that once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is you. You have been chosen. You have been brought into his family from no people to God's people, from the kingdom of Moab to the kingdom of God. This isn't your doing. It's his. It is his work. Right now in Christ, not even death can separate us from his love. Not even death. Nothing can. Not even ourselves. Not even our own failed love. Not even our pragmatism. And we can be confident of this truth. Because it doesn't depend on our ability to love him, does it? It depends fully on his ability to love you. And God does not struggle to do the things that he says he will do. He has no plan B. His plan is for you to follow him. And our response should be one of faith, one of praise, one of adoration, and then to live as lights of this truth 
right, as outposts to his kingdom in a world with no king, right, in a world that, that does whatever it pleases, we a people with a king who do as our king pleases are to be witnesses of his greater love. We're a chosen people in order to be witnesses of his greater love, to be witnesses of this new kingdom that's coming into this world so that people look at us and they want to actually be a part of this other kingdom. And this is what Ruth is reminding Naomi this morning. This is what she's reminding us this morning. In unexpected places and at unexpected times, God works. So there's that reminder for us. Who are you? You are a son. You are a daughter of Christ. You're part of his family. You have been saved to be an example of God to your neighbor. You aren't the people who hide. You are certainly not pragmatic people. But you are people called to live by faith. To love by faith, rooted and grounded in the strength of God and his people. May Ruth and Christ through Ruth guide us to a loving life. May we be a people with a dogged love of God, no matter what comes our way, may we be a people who never lose hope and who are lights in the darkness. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for your mercy and grace, for your steadfast love, which never fails. I pray that you would encourage us. Encourage us away from pragmatism. Encourage us away from the easy paths and encourage us to follow you no matter where you lead. May we trust you. May we be joined to you and your people. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.